Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Biotechnology company Moderna announced yesterday that its coronavirus vaccine candidate appears to be 94.5% effective against the disease. The news comes one week after Pfizer announced that its vaccine was more than 90% effective in a clinical trial. And as California rolls back reopening plans amid a spike in cases, we're going to discuss next steps for the new vaccines and what we know about safety and long-term effectiveness. What vaccine questions do you have? You can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And joining us is Damien Gardi, National Biotech Reporter for STAT. Welcome to the program. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And I do have your name right. It's Gardi? Correct. Yeah. Okay, good to have you aboard here. This is, for a change, really good news. I mean, despite all the terrible statistics that we're looking at every day, it's very encouraging that we have two companies that actually have what appear to be effective vaccines and vaccines that are generally well-tolerated and vaccines that uh, have at least not some serious side effects, at least so it would appear at this point. Uh, Let's talk about what's working here. It's based on a new technology with both Moderna and Pfizer, what we call mRNA, and uh, that's messenger RNA. And talk about how that works. Yeah, so each of the companies has developed a a means of creating synthetic mRNA. So in nature, in your body, mRNA kind of provides the instructions. It goes from from DNA to your cells um, and tells them which proteins to make in order to keep everything working in your body. And so the approach here is to create synthetic mRNA that will instruct those same cells to make a protein that is present on the surface of the coronavirus. And once those cells do, your body recognizes that protein as a foreign invader and develops its own antibodies to it. And the theory behind this, and you know, this theory seems to have been, at least in the interim, confirmed by recent data, is that those antibodies, as they flow throughout your system, if you get exposed to COVID-19, they will block the virus from gaining access to your cells and replicating and making you sick. And you know, thus you have uh, what look like two very promising vaccines for COVID-19. Very nicely and cogently uh, described for us. Uh, and these experiments were done with placebos uh, and uh, with the actual vaccines. Uh, let's talk though about the timeline. Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci said by the end of December, We'll actually have these probably, uh, but we're not looking really realistically in terms of any kind of widespread distribution until the spring, are we? Right. And, and so it's important to keep in mind that what we have ahead of us is a tiered rollout of these vaccines is probably the best way to put it. So um, what Fauci is referring to with December is that's likely when the FDA would grant what's called an emergency use authorization 
for both of these vaccines. And what that would mean is that they would be authorized for use in high-risk populations, frontline workers, healthcare workers, um, the elderly, people with comorbidities, basically the people at the highest risk for developing severe and potentially fatal COVID-19. Um, the other constraining factor is that both Moderna and Pfizer have said that they're only gonna be able to produce maybe tens of millions of doses by the end of this year. And it's important to remember that each vaccine requires two doses. So you cut that in half when it comes to how many people and also that they have signed agreements with countries around the world. So in, in the context of the United States or even in California, you know, these are kind of dwindling returns. So to your point about it being not widespread available for some time, quite likely it wouldn't be fully FDA approved until the middle of next year or thereabouts, which is when, you know, it'd be available to people like you and me who, or I, I guess I'm, I'm, I may be unfairly considering you an, an inessential worker, but I'm an inessential worker. And so I will not be first in line for this vaccine. Um, but even next year, when there will be potentially 2 billion doses of these vaccines available, likewise, there will still be a supply constraint because, you know, there's 7.5 billion people in the world and the majority of them will be candidates for this vaccine. Although there are other vaccines on the horizon, uh, we don't know what the supply is going to be like uh, because uh, the fact of the matter is, we're talking about certain kinds of vaccines made uh, with our, uh, with mRNA, but there are other vaccines uh, that we can talk about uh, that are coming at this from a different perspective. But I'm interested in finding out just a couple of facts for the sake of our listeners. Uh, this is not like measles. We're not going to know how long these vaccines last uh, on the one hand, and we don't know about the spread to others or the possibility of spread, do we? Exactly. I think those are two very important, outstanding questions. So in the very positive data that we've seen, it's important to remember that it is interim data. So not only do we not know how long these vaccines might protect people against COVID-19, we don't even know because of the novel nature of this virus, we don't know how long naturally occurring antibodies will protect people. Like we're, we're still on the lookout for confirmed cases of reinfection for people who have recovered from the virus itself. So there is so much we have to learn both about the vaccines um, and the virus. And then, you know, the other thing, well, yeah, so, so comparing it to other vaccines that are, you know, maybe you get once in your life and never again versus something for which you might need a booster shot once a year, we don't know where on that spectrum uh, these are going to fall. And I, I'm sorry, I've already blanked on the second question you had, but I remember thinking it was very interesting. What was the other Well, about pre preventing spread to others. Uh, we don't oh, really right. know that right. either. So I was going to say, um, so with these two trials and, and with most of the vaccine trials that are currently ongoing, they are designed to determine whether the vaccine prevents someone from getting COVID-19, which is system the disease that eventually kills so many people. They are not designed or they're not primarily designed to determine whether the vaccines prevent people from getting SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus. And that sounds kind of in the weeds, but it's it's important to consider. So it, it makes sense because we're in the middle of a pandemic to prioritize preventing the disease that actually kills people. Because if you think about it, no one really dies from SARS-CoV-2, they die from COVID-19. However, even if you're asymptomatic and get over SARS-CoV-2 all on your own, we know that you can still spread it to people. So a secondary question that we are not gonna learn terribly soon, but we'll learn eventually, is whether these vaccines also protect against the spread of asymptomatic disease. And that would be really the best case scenario because that would mean that we could really eradicate this both in terms of symptomatic disease that occurs, but also in um, the carriers and spreaders who might be doing so unwittingly. Talking with Damien Garde, and he's national biotech reporter for STAT. And if you have questions, please bring them aboard here. You can give us a call now. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. Again, 
You can call us now and join us at 866-733-6786, and you can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. Uh, as you indicated before, Damien, we're talking about the need to essentially, if you're looking globally, have billions of doses, and we've been doing this at warp speed, as the cliche would have it. Uh, there has been some concern expressed that maybe it's all been done a little bit too hastily. There's a lot that has to be done before FDA approval. We need a lot more safety data before we get full authorization. So uh, what about the question that many people have? Is this going too fast? Is this on too fast a track? It's a legitimate concern. It's one that's been echoed you know, from vaccine experts external to the process, but also that's been shared by people, you know, within Operation Warp Speed is the, the federal program that is uh, coordinating this effort. I think it, in each case, it's a matter of balancing benefit and risk. So, you know, as we mentioned, when these vaccines are approved for emergency use, it will be based on only months of safety data. But in the minds of regulators, that's an appropriate balance of risk and benefit because we're dealing with such a serious pandemic and it would be, the vaccines would be cleared only for those at the highest risk. And so you just, basically the benefits have to uh, outweigh the risks even more when you start talking about giving the vaccine to more and more people. So you can imagine that even when some are approved, uh, federal regulators, because supply will be constrained, will still be um, picking and choosing, uh, you know, who's eligible for the vaccine because the last thing we would want to do is discover a side effect months down the road um, that we didn't know about. And we've already widely given this vaccine to people who weren't at a very high risk of developing COVID-19 in the first place, in which case that side effect is, you know, that much more something you want to avoid. So it's a legitimate concern. And it's one that, you know, I think for anyone who has it should know that uh, the powers that be <laughs> seem to share it. Um, and I think it's it's a, probably a debate that will continue as we get more and more data on these vaccines between people who think that they're absolutely ready for prime time and people who think that we should wait a little bit longer before disseminating them. And, and I look forward to seeing the results of that, frankly. Well, we are going to have hundreds of more human tests and thousands of more human tests. And uh, we're also going to have some callers and listeners join us. First, starting with you, Dave and Livermore. Good morning. You're on the air. Well, hi. Uh, so the question I had um, is that uh, people that get vaccinated and do have immunity, uh, which may take, take some time after they complete the vaccination, uh, I understand that they could still be contagious um, and spread it on to other people. Could that be explained, please? Damien. It's theoretically possible. I mean, this is kind of what we touched on before, which is that what we're learning is that these vaccines seem to be effective at preventing symptomatic COVID-19. So people getting coughs, fevers, or, you know, worst case scenario, requiring ventilation. What we don't know is whether they really snuff out the virus itself. So, you know, to, to your point, could people who get vaccinated still spread the virus? As of right now, we don't know. Maybe. Um, that's data that we are, you know, kind of going to have to look forward to as these very, very large trials play out. I think one thing I probably should have mentioned at the outset, what we're talking about is interim data from the first few thousand patients in multi-thousand patient trials that are intended to follow these people for years to get both side effect results and to find out how long they're protected. And then, as I said before, to find out exactly the viruses, I'm sorry, the vaccine's effect on the virus itself. So I feel like the most prudent way to answer that is because we don't know, 
the existence of these vaccines is not a reason to change one's behavior with respect to mask wearing and social distancing and other things that have been demonstrated to uh, reduce the spread of the virus. No, in fact, Dr. Fauci was talking about the synergy between a vaccine and public health measures, just like the ones you mentioned. And I think that's very important to bear in mind. I'm going to bring another caller on. Mary joins us from Davis. Mary, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you. So I heard from my doctor at UC Davis that the tests have shown that the first injection shows no side effects, basically, but the second injection has made people sicker than they say they've ever been in their lives, including the worst headache they've ever had. And I want to know what your, what your expert can say about the side effects. Yeah, let's go to that with you, uh, Damon Gardy. I mean, they've been talking about mild side effects on the one hand, where the injection is with just fatigue and aching muscles or joints for a couple of days. But some have complained, as the caller suggests, about more serious side effects. What do we know? Yeah, I mean, first, I would make sure that no one thinks of me as an expert. As a reporter, I'm fortunate enough to talk to experts. And one of the things that they've said, you know, analyzing these data is that, um, you know, the, the side effects are pretty well distributed to where people would say that the, va- the vaccines have seemed to be generally tolerable. But but to the caller's point, I mean, that that's very true. There have been a few uh, outside cases of, of, you know, severe headache, what they call grade three side effects, uh, which in vaccine terms are what they, the way they score it is grade three is it's something that disrupts your daily activities, but doesn't require hospitalization. So in practical terms, it means that, you know, some people upon getting that second dose have had to maybe stay in bed for a day. Um, and we will get more information as to how prevalent those more severe side effects are across the whole populations. And then it'll become, you know, as I said before, everything is a matter of balancing benefits and risk. Even aspirin has side effects. And so it'll be up to physicians and, and people themselves to decide whether for a given person, the risk of losing a day to bed rest because of a headache um, outweighs the risk of you know, getting COVID-19 and potentially severe COVID-19 that could be fatal. I think the bad news is there ha- there can be some severe side effects, at least from what I've read, but none that would require hospitalization. That's the good news, I guess, at this point. But what does all this tell us about mRNA as a medical technology? I mean, it would be developed uh, presumably for other pathogens, couldn't it? Yeah, exactly. So the promise of mRNA goes back decades. I mean, as is often the case in science, there are no overnight successes. So the we've got two weeks of very good news of mRNA that has come on the heels of many, many years of, of fits and starts and advancement. Um, but in following that technology, the most, I guess the lowest hanging fruit in the minds of scientists was always vaccines. It always kind of made intuitive sense that you could use mRNA to express proteins, as we said before, that might generate an immune response and, and then make someone immunized from a pathogen. So you know, if these results hold up, and I can't underline enough that they are early, early data, but if they do, all of the companies involved have pretty grand designs to develop vaccines for uh, other pathogens that don't have vaccines or don't have good vaccines at the very least. But also, I think both Moderna and uh, Pfizer's partner, a company called BioNTech, have said that they want to get into the annual business of uh, influenza shots. I mean, as you know, we we kind of uh, we go through this sort of global game of expert guesswork every year to try to isolate what the flu strain will be and. Some years the vaccine is very good and some years it's kind of middling. If you look at the coronavirus example, the COVID-19 example, these companies learned about this virus you know, roughly nine months ago and are now at the point of having this kind of positive data on a vaccine. If you could apply that to influenza, and I think they, they're probably maybe a few years away from making this operational, but you can imagine a future where this technology could really change the way we think about the flu in the world.
Yeah, no, they're talking about that. They're talking about SARS and and, and even things like Zika. Let me bring another caller on. Alex joins us from Berkeley. Alex, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. Hi, how you doing? Uh, really glad to be here. Uh, so I wanted to talk about Lamab, which is a, uh, a drug that's been proven safe in over a thousand different uh, uh, patient clinical trials, uh, for uh, primarily for HIV and AIDS, uh, but has been shown to be extremely effective and safe. Uh, in the treatment of of, uh, of COVID nineteen, that took in a, uh, an, not an investigational study, it cured seventeen out of twenty three people who were supposed to die, who were extremely uh, uh, sick with comorbidities that had already been given a number of other drugs that had not worked. It's right now in a phase two two three trial. It's already demonstrated extreme efficacy. Stat News, in fact, has published a number of hit pieces against the you know the company and the drug. Uh, with little to no actual information. This is a drug that's been proven safe and effective for a long time. It's not being deployed right now because of politics. I'm wondering if uh, if your uh, guest would uh, care to comment about that. Uh, Damon Gardner, can you? <laughs> uh, so I'm one of my colleagues has covered uh, the development of Loranima much more closely than I have, but it is a, it's what's called a CCR5 uh, targeting drug, I think as the caller mentioned, it's been tested um, in other uh, viral incidences, I haven't followed its development. I, I guess what I would say, um, there are a lot of potential therapies for, so this is external to vaccines, potential therapeutics that would either deal with COVID-19 infection or maybe just as importantly, deal with the side effects of it that actually prove fatal, which is usually a, a very severe immune response that results in lung injury um, and in some cases death. Lamab is among them. I can't claim to have followed closely uh, its development. So I would defer to, to anyone who wants to do kind of their own digging on on that. But I would say that it's it's worth considering there are, I, I, I assume, more than 100 ongoing clinical trials of various therapeutics that may or may not be able to, uh, to help people who are already sick with the disease. There's a question on probably many people's minds from Dan, uh, who emails us wanting to know, uh, we know that the distribution of a vaccine will be gradual, but how soon will it be affecting spread or heading toward herd immunity. Now, this is all notwithstanding what's happening with Scott Atlas uh, recently, who seems to be a big advocate of herd immunity. But we need at least about 65, 70 percent uh, to even bring down the spread, don't we? Uh, this is a glo- and this is a global problem. Herds don't uh, operate in a vacuum. Right. I was going to say herd immunity as an agricultural term um, doesn't, you know, cows don't go on global vacations the way people do. So it is a little more um, complicated. It's a great question. And I think you know, it, it's very much up in the air and all of the experts are kind of looking at this in stages. So there's a hope, I think, among the Tony Fauci's of the world that the prospect of a near-term vaccine provides a light at the end of the tunnel that might convince people to really redouble their efforts to follow um, you know, public health guidelines that have been in place for some time now, this winter especially, heading into the holidays. But after that, as I mentioned, you know, supplies will be constrained. So if these are the only two vaccines available to us as a society in 2021, there's only about there will probably only be about two billion doses, which just isn't enough to get to that threshold. We also have to worry about uh, refrigeration storage, which we didn't even have time to get into here. Uh, although, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and, you can one actually... cliche I was going to. Oh, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say one no, cliche but... I would deploy that uh, I didn't come up with, but that vaccines don't save the world vaccinations do so the other hurdle is that we can have 2.3 billion doses of this vaccine but if nobody wants to take it it's completely useless absolutely right you have to have people wanting to take the vaccines and both shots Uh, thank you so much for joining us damien good to have you with us and to all our listeners please stay safe i'm michael krasny
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.